You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Well, good morning, New City. Sorry about that. I uh, forgot about my microphone. My name is Raiden Hollis. For those of you tuning in a little bit late to the live stream this morning, I am obviously not Nick Volkening. He's much taller, much more handsome, and younger than me, so almost better in every single possible way. And I just want to say to you that you are so blessed to have Nick Volkening as your pastor. I have a tremendous amount of love and respect for him. He is a man who loves Jesus more than just about anybody that I've ever known. He He has a passion for his people. He has a passion for Shambana, and he has a passion for you because I know you're part of this family of God, this family of faith. I just want to honor him and honor Aaron. I want to say what a privilege it is to preach what I assume is the first sermon that Eden will hear part of. If you didn't catch that also, Eden Grace Volkening was born this week, so we thank God for her. Thank God for her arrival. Thank God that Aaron is healthy and the baby is healthy and everybody's doing good. And just in case he's watching, I want to give a special shout out to Ben it, one of the coolest people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and the single best greeter that any church has ever experienced. So I uh, bring you greetings from Red Hill Church, which is the sending church for New City. Red Hill is the church where I'm a pastor and Red Hill uh, was happy to send out Nick and Aaron and a, a team of people to come to Champaign to plant this church a couple of years ago. Our church is doing well, missing all of you, grateful to have you here, excited about what God's doing in you and in your church family and excited about the coming future for you guys, moving into a new space and all the things that are happening here in Champaign because the Lord is working in and through this church family. So we're so thankful for you. I'm honored to be here today. We're going to be in Ruth chapter one. If you want to open up your Bible or scroll there in an app, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter one, verses eight through 18. And I'm going to read that passage for us right now. I'm reading from the English standard version of the Bible. Starting in verse eight, it says this, but now Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should, uh, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people 
shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let's pray, and then we're going to spend some time walking through this passage together. God, we love you. Thank you for the story of, you, uh, of Ruth. I pray that in this moment, even now, you would calm my heart and allow me to speak clearly and passionately and faithfully about your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would operate through the singing, the praying, the preaching, the giving, the celebrating together of Jesus, that you would speak to our hearts. Even as I preach, Holy Spirit, work inside of me and accomplish your purposes inside of me. Have your way inside of each of us. God, we're thankful for technology, but we also say we long to be together again, to be able to embrace each other and hug each other and uh, imagine what smiles look like behind masks, to feel the warmth of proximity and fellowship once again. God, would you bring it about soon, bring it about quickly and safely, rescue us from the distance that this pandemic has created, weave our hearts together on mission. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I just want to give you a recap because we, we're just getting into the book of Ruth. I should, I should say you are just getting into the book of Ruth as a church family. I listened to Nick's message last week, and I just kind of want to walk through what's happened. You'll remember that at the close of Judges, the last sentence uh, or two of Judges is pretty tough. It, it closes out in chapter 21, verse, what is it here, 25, it looks like. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where Ruth picks up. Everybody's just trying to find their own way in the world. They're just making it up as they go. Just doing what seems and what feels right. Not Honestly, not all that different from the world that you and I live in today. Where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and they feel justified in it. Well, there's a guy named Elimelech. And he moves his family from Bethlehem all the way over to Moab. And uh, he does that because there's a famine in Bethlehem. And then what happens is Elimelech dies and both of his sons die. But I want to kind of give you the context of really what an ancient reader would have seen. So they would have been intrigued, first of all, by the possibility and probably troubled by the, the fact that this family moved from Bethlehem to Moab because the Moabites were the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. I mean, these were, these were the rejects of Israel because what happened was they were formed as a people when Lot had an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. Uh, the result of that is the people of Moab. And in Hebrew, Moab is a compound word. Mo means who, and Ab means father. So literally, Moab is the land of who's your daddy. That's what Moab means. Who's your father? Who's your daddy? And in Hebrew, names always mean something. So for instance, Bethlehem, Beth means house, and Lehem means bread. So Bethlehem means the house of bread. This is probably a reference to the granary or the abundance of food that's normally there. Of course, Naomi means pleasant. And, and we'll see, you'll see later on in this book how she changes her name to reflect what's really happening in her heart. So it means pleasant. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, means my God is king. And of course, Naomi means pleasant. Their two sons, man, tragic names for their two sons. Melon, which means weak, and Chilion, which means frail. So if the ancient readers were reading this, there's a great book called A Loving Life by a guy named, uh, named Paul Miller. And I'm just going to quote what he says in A Loving Life. Here's how the ancient reader would have understood this if we were putting it into common vernacular. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of who's your daddy. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was My God is King, and the name of his wife Pleasant, and the names of his two sons were weak and frail. They were Ephrathites from the house of bread in Judah. They went into the country of who's your daddy and remained there. But my God is king. The husband of Pleasant died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both weak and frail died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband." This is what that this is what the context is. This woman's name is Pleasant, and her pleasant life is that she's in a famine, so she has to go live with hillbilly cousins, the offspring of an incestuous relationship, and while there, my God is king, dies. Not only that, but her two sons die, leaving her incredibly exposed. But in verse 6, there's this allusion to a glimmer of hope. A, just a glimmer of hope. Don't you love it when the news comes on and they're like, COVID is going down. Restaurants are opening up a little bit. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to be so great when we get to do things again. Do you remember doing things? Doing things is the best. I love doing things. It's so much fun to do things. And do you remember people, like plural, people that don't share your last name or your proximity of dwelling, like other people? Remember how great that was? You get this little taste of hope. My daughter and I went and saw a movie last night in a movie theater. And it was like, this is amazing. I don't even care if the movie is good. This is, I'm eating popcorn. I paid like $40 for six pieces of popcorn. So I started eating it, then I get full. I don't even care. I'm outside. There are other people around. It's awesome. I love it. Just a glimmer of hope in verse 6. You see this glimmer of, his, of hope that Naomi feels. It says in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of, uh, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab. What had she heard? that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had visited his people. Ruth is this poetically beautiful book. You have to read it slowly. And as you read it, you have to imagine yourself in the position of the people who were there and what it must have felt like. And what it must have, like what must have been pulling on their hearts and the tragedy of their lives. But in the midst of this great tragedy, Naomi hears this rumor that the Lord has visited his people. And she says, we've got to go back. So this little broken tribe of ladies begins making its way back to the land of Judah. And that's where we're picking up right here in verse 8. I know all of that is just refresher for you guys. But I had to say it because I had to kind of ramp myself up to get into the sermon this morning. So thanks for humoring me a little bit. Verses 8 through 10 is Naomi's first act of what we're going to call hesed love. Hesed is a Hebrew word, and it's a word that's used to describe the love that God has for his people. It's a covenantal love. It's a covenantal love, a love that can't be broken. It's oftentimes described as kindness or long-suffering mercy, or long-suffering kindness, or long-suffering love, as you look at it in the Old Testament particularly. Naomi is talking to her daughters-in-law in verses 8 through 10, and let's just read those again. She says, it says, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, 
we will return with you to your people. So Naomi's first act of Hesed love, her life is broken. She has no protective covering over her. She has no husband to take care of her. She has no sons to take care of her. In the Near Eastern culture, what would happen in a family is this. The daughters would go away and would marry other people. They would move away, but the sons would stay home. There was an interesting study that was done once comparing the, uh, the reaction of Western men and Saudi men in, in a particular scenario. And the scenario was this. You're on a boat with your wife, your daughters, and your mother. And the boat is sinking and you can only save one person. Who will you save? Well, unfailingly, the Western men either chose their daughter or their wife. And unfailingly, the Saudi men chose their mother because it's their responsibility to continue caring for their mother. So not only has Naomi lost her husband, not only has Naomi lost her home, not only has Naomi lost her provisions and her influence and the land that belonged to her family, but now she's lost her sons and now she's trying to send away her daughters-in-law. And why is she doing this? Because she knows what's waiting for her in Bethlehem, a broken life, a miserable, unprotected life, a hopeless life of poverty, of, of destitution, of just begging for the kindness of others to provide for her because she has no standing, she has no home, she has no hope. May the Lord, she says, deal kindly with you. And if you are reading a Hebrew Bible, it would say this, may the Lord do hesed with you as you have done hesed with me and with the dead. What she's saying is you all have demonstrated a selfless, unfailing kindness to me and to your husbands, a covenantal love to us. And I'm asking the Lord to demonstrate that to you, but I want you to go away, go back to your people because this is a hopeless situation. So in the midst of her grief, she is saying, I still want something good for you. Why would someone do this? It's because they actually love someone else. Love, love, hesed love is like, it's love without an escape plan. It's love no matter what the cost. It's love that we're all actually longing for and looking for in all sorts of places and in all sorts of relationships. It's that thing that you know, if you could find it, it would fill you up. It's the opposite, actually. It's the opposite of what Disney World produces for us, which is baseless human optimism. Baseless human optimism. Why is it baseless? Have you ever met humans? Right? Seriously, I mean, have you met a human being before? Have you ever met a single human being who didn't in some way let you down, in some way hurt you or disappoint you or discourage you? But if you watch a Disney movie, the communicated message is this. And by the way, I, I like Disney World, so don't, you don't need to send me emails or anything about it, okay? Disney fans, relax a second. I'm simply saying their picture of love is less than God's picture of love. Because their picture of love is this. If you find just the right person, everything will work. But the message of Hesed love is this. Whether or not things work has nothing to do with love. Love is not contingent upon the object. Love is contingent upon the subject. How do we know this? Because the Bible teaches us that, well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us the just for the unjust. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wasn't looking for just the right person. He wasn't roaming the earth going, if I could just find a good enough human to die for, then I would die for them. 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. This is what hesed is, and this is what hesed does. If you want to love someone, if you want to love someone the way that God has loved you, then you don't have to worry about whether or not they're loving you back. It's liberating to love like this. It's difficult to love like this. But this is what Naomi is doing for her daughters-in-law. She knows what's waiting for them, a hopeless life. And so she says, go back. You got to go back, guys. You got to go back. I want the Lord to do hesed with you the way that you've done hesed with me. And not only that, she says, but I want you to find rest. That's such a nice thing, isn't it? It says, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. And in verse 9, may the Lord uh, grant that you may find rest. That Hebrew word is manoah. And it has its roots in Noah. And what it means is a place of settled peace where shalom exists. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Shalom is that feeling on the inside that everything is finally right in the world. Shalom is that thing that you get when you just find just the perfect moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? That maybe, that maybe it's like a hot cup of coffee underneath a warm blanket as snow gently falls outside and there's nothing on the to-do list. And you just look out and you just go, oh man, this is, this is, this is the spot. This is just the perfect place. This is the, if I could capture this moment and keep this moment. And, and I want to say that that moment, it's really something more than, than foreshadowing of what's to come for us. It's really almost like we have a memory of something that doesn't exist yet for us. We have this, this, faint, this faint recollection of something that's out there for us. It's that hint of what's to come. Manoah, she says, I, I want you to have the place of settled peace. I mean, this, this is someone who's lost everything. This is someone who's lost everything, loving in this kind of a way. But the response from both Orpah and Ruth, if you're like me, by the way, every time you see Orpah, you think Oprah, you know? So it's like, you get a husband, you get a husband, you get a daughter, and that's not, that's not it, it's Orpah. So I hope somebody's laughing. No one here is laughing. I'm not comforted at all by that, but I'm going to keep going. So Orpah and, and Ruth say, no thanks, like hard pass on leaving you. And, and it's significant that at that moment, Naomi kisses them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They're crying out together. Then in verses 11 through 14, Naomi goes deeper into the hesed, deeper into the love. She says this, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Okay, so deeper into the Hesed, Naomi is trying to paint as bleak of a scenario as possible. You see this happen sometimes in movies where like you have the spouse that's unjustly convicted of murdering somebody, and they're behind bars, and they're talking to their spouse through the plain glass, you know, plate glass window, and they're like, I did it. I did it. I'm a killer. 
killer. You need to leave me and divorce me. And the husband or the wife's like, no, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to stick in here. This, this is an act of selfless love. I don't have any hope of getting out of this situation. So I'm trying to push you away and release you so that you can go away. It's like they're trying to out hesed one another, right? I'm going to love you and I'm going to stick with you by sending you away. I'm not going away. I'm going to out love you by sticking and being miserable with you. I'm going to sacrifice any hope for joy and comfort in this life because I am covenantally committed to you. That's kind of what's going on. And, and Naomi paints this incredibly bleak scenario. So she says this. She says, okay, just imagine. Just imagine if you will. Number one, I got a husband tonight. I, that I was able to find a husband tonight and marry him. And number two, that here on our wedding night, we were to conceive Right? So on our wedding night, we conceived. Not only that, but we conceived twins. Not only do we conceive twins tonight, but they're twin boys. Not only are they twin boys, but you don't marry anyone in this intervening time. No one else comes for you. Not only that, but they grow up healthy and strong and, and commit to marry you. And even if every single thing that Naomi lists out happens, she says, it'll be too late for you. You'll have no children, no one to be a covering over you. What she's saying is the situation is 100% absolutely hopeless. There's nothing that can be done. I don't want you to miss, though, I don't want you to miss in verse 13 how good of a theologian Naomi is. She is a good theologian. Because in verse 13, she says this incredible phrase, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Her life is falling apart. It's falling apart. And her response is not, where are you, God? She knows where God is. God is present, and his hand has gone out against her. And so she does something here that we use the biblical word, lament. She laments. What is a lament? A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. We see laments in the Old Testament. There's some examples in Psalm chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 13, 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In Isaiah 63, 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? In Psalm 35, 17, how long, O Lord, will you look on over and over and over and over and over in the Old Testament and into the New Testament? We see good theological truth in lament. What is lament? Lament is saying this. It's, there's two basic components. It's saying, number one, I believe God is in control of all things. And number two, this is not how it's supposed to be. And we're uncomfortable with lament. Right? We, we want to be happy all the time. And any disruption to our happiness is seen as something that must immediately be overcome. We have to immediately figure out how to be happy. So we pursue that with total reckless abandon. Instead of saying, God, you're in control. And God, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I'm calling out to you and I'm just saying quite simply, why? 
And I want to tell you what makes a lament so good. You know what makes David like one of the best lamenters ever? A man after God's own heart. It was not that he lived a flawless life. I mean, this was an adulterous murderer. An adulterous murderer committing sexual violence against Bathsheba who is called a man after God's own heart. Why is he a man after God's own heart? I think there's two primary reasons. Number one, he's quick to repent. So when confronted with his sin, he's quick to repent, man. When Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man, you did this thing, David says, I'm the, I'm the man, it's me, I'm guilty. I bear the weight of my sin. And number two, when the world wasn't what it was supposed to be, David didn't go to his friends David didn't go to his gossip circle. David didn't go online and tweet about it. David went to the Lord. That's what makes a lament God honoring is when the machine is operating in life and things are not what they're supposed to be. We don't rage against that machine. We go to God and we say, this is not how it's supposed to be. Your hand has gone out against us, and we are sad. Did you know that sadness is a gift? Every emotion that you can feel, it's a gift. It's communicating something to you. It's a gift. Naomi is so sad. Her life has fallen apart. Can you feel that? Have you ever felt that in your life? I used to wonder if there were people who didn't know what depression or sadness or anxiety felt like. And then 2020 happened. And everybody knows it now. We're all acquainted with grief. We're familiar with anxiety and suffering and loss. And could I just say, sometimes you just need to be sad. You need to be sad. And when your friends are sad, sometimes you need to just be sad with them. To just sit and say, I'm, I'm just going to be here and be present with you. Isn't that what we want when our lives have fallen apart? It's not for someone to come along with a platitude to say Romans 8.28 to us. Hey, all things are working together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Can you imagine if someone had said that to Naomi when her husband has died and her sons have died and she is literally just on the road as a struggling, straggling, like just loser in life. Yeah, you've lost everything. You've lost your home. You've lost your heritage. You've lost your land. You've lost your husband. You've lost your sons. But don't worry because everything's going to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You know who usually quotes that verse is people whose lives are presently working together for good. That's who usually quotes that verse. Sometimes when someone loses a child, when someone loses a spouse, when someone loses a job, when someone loses a home, when life breaks, the greatest gift that you can give to them is to put your arms around them and to say, this is not how the world is supposed to be. And I'm so sad at what's been lost. And by allowing someone the space to feel the gift of grief, they are able also to say, this is not how it's supposed to be, which will eventually lead them to, this is not how it will be. So they're lamenting together. When it says they're lifting up their voices and weeping, that's what they're doing. They're lamenting together. They're crying. They're crying and they're crying out to the Lord. 
And what happens in verse 14? This time Orpah does the kissing. What's she doing? She's saying goodbye. This is the end of her covenantal love to Naomi. She will always feel fondly about Naomi and be grateful for Naomi. But this is the end of her covenantal love with her. But not Ruth. Ruth clings to her. So Naomi is now going to make one last ditch effort. I'm going to paint it as bleak, as black, as hopeless as I can possibly paint it for you. And that's what happens in verse 15 through 18. It says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your uh, people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I just, I just love this little section of Scripture. It's so poetic. It's so beautiful. Um, Basically, what Naomi says to Ruth is this, abandon me and abandon Yahweh. Oh, man, okay. We like clean-cut heroes, don't we? We like our heroes to be good and only good. But Naomi's a person, and she's hurting. She's angry, and she's getting bitter. And so in the midst of all of this, she looks at her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and is like, you got to get away from me, and you need to get away from Yahweh. Go back to your people and go back to your gods. Now, at this point, Ruth could have just said, no, hard pass. I'm sticking with you. But she doesn't. Instead, she engages in poetry, this beautiful poem. And it, it has these awesome couplets. It's like it's, you hear hints of JFK. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. This, you see this parallelism all throughout this poem. She says, wherever you're going to go, I'm going to go. Right, Wherever you're going to lodge, I'm going to lodge. Whoever your people are, those are my people. Whoever your God is, that's my God. I don't care. I am with you. The most basic commitment of Hesed love is, as the Lord has done Hesed love with me, I will do Hesed love with you. That is what Ruth is saying back to Naomi. The Lord has done Hesed love with me. I will do Hesed love with you. This is how we know what love is. That God has first loved us. This is how you even have a concept of love. Because God has loved you. And to do anything less than what God has done for you is to do something less than love. So Naomi says, your path is my path. Your home is my home. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And guess what? When you die, when you die, even death cannot break my love for you. It's like the princess bride. Death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it for a little while, right? This is what's going on. Hey, when you come to your end, be sure to save me a seat because I'm following after and I'm coming wherever you're coming. So wherever you go, I'm there. Whatever happens to you is going to happen to me. And when you die, when you are dead and gone, here's how strong my commitment is to you. I'm going to go ahead and dig the next hole because I'm never leaving you. That is never going to happen, no matter what. Don't you want someone to love you like that? She uses the language of covenant to seal the deal. The language of covenant. May God do so to me and more also. You ever, on like the playgrounds, say, cross my heart and hope to die? 
when you're making a promise. You're making a covenant when you're doing something like that. All the way back to when God makes a covenant with Abram. You remember what happens? They cut animals in half. And then the light representing God passes through the animal halves. What's being said right there is this. If I do not fulfill my covenant with you, then may this happen to me. So that language, may this happen, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, is covenantal language. By the way, this little poem is used in weddings all the time. And by the way, did you know that the very layout of a wedding is meant to symbolize what happened all the way back with Abram and God? Covenant, two halves split apart, and people pass through the center of the halves. It's a picture of covenant, the word covenant, berith, it means to cut. That's what it means. So Ruth is using this covenantal language saying, if I don't follow through on the thing that I have promised to you, then let me be chopped into bits by the sovereign, almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. May he unleash the full fury of his wrath upon me if I don't finish what I started with you. Whew. And Naomi's like, I guess that's the end of it. Because there's not really much that you can say when someone loves you like that. There's not much that you can say when someone will press past those walls of defenses of grief, guilt, and shame. They just leap right over the top of them and say, it's cool. I'm just going to hang out in here with you for as long as you need to be here. But I'm not leaving. I'm not going away. I have no one else. You are my Manoah. You are my place of peace and rest. And I will forever do hesed with you. As the Lord has done hesed with me. This, of course, is a picture of Jesus for us. That thing that you're longing for, that love that your heart is aching for, of course, this is what Jesus has done for you. He himself has not only entered our grief, but fully acquainted himself with it. He's a man of constant sorrows, well acquainted with grief, understanding every human emotion, the depth of the pain of all of it so deep in his anxiety was he in the Garden of Gethsemane. Anxiety, the most common emotion felt now by anyone ages 15 to 25. Anxiety, this restless anxiety. So familiar with that was the Lord Jesus Christ that in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane excuse me, his anxiety so greatly overwhelms him that the stress causes the capillaries in his face to burst and he quite literally sweats drops of blood. And in the midst of his anxiety, where are his friends? Taking a nap. I just needed you to watch with me and pray with me for an hour, just for an hour. But now the time is at hand. Here come my betrayers. Even in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of deep betrayal, even in the midst of un uncomfortable anxiety, even in the midst of loneliness and pain and having God his Father turn his back on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's looking at me and he's looking at you this morning and he's saying, I am never going to leave you. I am I am going to love you. I have laid down my life to love you, regardless of who you are. This is, this is the joke, right? This is the joke. It's yes, well, but Raiden, you don't know what I've done. No, it's, it's quite true. I don't know what you've done, and I don't need to know what you've done. I'm not interested in what you've done. I've got my own what I've done problems. 
But Jesus does know what you've done. There's never been a person who has known you better than Jesus knows you, and there's never been someone who has loved you more than Jesus loves you. Not despite all you've done. Not despite all you've done, because hesed has nothing to do with the object. This is the secret of love, guys. It has nothing to do with the object. It's a determination by the one who's giving it. The determination is made regardless of the object. When you got married, those of you who are married, when you get married, you don't know what's going to happen. What if a couple of years after marriage, your spouse gets sick? They get cancer, and they begin deteriorating before your eyes, and they say to you, I just want you to leave me. Just go away and leave me. I don't want you to see me like this. I just want you to go away. What if they get a prolonged debilitating disease? Something that for the rest of their lives robs them of their personality. They can no longer be present as the person that you actually married. Hesed love says, has nothing to do with what they can give to me or what they can do for me or what they have done to me. I've made a choice. I had a friend, Matt Porter, great friend of mine in college. He's a defensive lineman, football player. So like just the kind of guy that I like being friends with. You know what I'm saying? Like the kind of guy that a little guy like me walks around with, like he's Conor McGregor. You know, like you just swing the arms because you got this gigantic dude behind you. You know, living in the shadow of the presence, you know, the shadow of the almighty. So Matt Porter's big, big dude, awesome, awesome guy. Started doing a clown ministry when he was in college. And he was this five-year-old clown named Chex. And he would go to like malls and stuff. Do you remember malls? Places people used to gather for shopping and commerce. Uh, like if Amazon was a real place, that's what a mall was, okay? So he would go to malls, he'd do clown ministry. He said, man, I was at this one mall, I'm doing clown ministry, and, and Chex is a five-year-old kid, so he talks like a little kid. He says, I'm talking to these, this group of teenagers, trying to share the gospel with them, do some little magic tricks and make some balloon animals. And he said, these teenagers, this one particular, is just relentlessly berating me, just verbally berating me, just beating me down verbally. And I'm trying to stay in character. I'm, I'm talking to him. Why are you so mean? Chex loves you. Chex wants to be your friend, you know. And this kid, is just, he's just not having it. He's just, just beating, 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 beating. And so my friend Matt, he's like, I, I broke the rules. I'm not supposed to break character, but I broke character. And Matt also has a voice that I'm so jealous of. Like my, my voice is like, if you took the chipmunks and slowed them down like just a little bit, that's my preaching voice. But he's got one of these deep, like deep, deep bass voices. And he's like, so I, I just took it down, like took it way down, like very white, low. He's like, I took it down. And I said, listen, I want you to understand something. You can hate me with every fiber of your being, but there's nothing you can do that will ever stop me from loving you. That is Hesed love. That is the kind of love that God is offering to you this morning. And I want you to know if you've never received that love, if you've never embraced that love and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you, I'm talking to you, you can receive it this morning. Just by simply bowing your head and saying, God, I want that love. I'm giving you my life. Would you do Hesed love with me? If you do that this morning, man, would you please, please let Nick or one of the pastors at New City know. And those of you, those of you who have received that love, it is incumbent upon us to be givers of that same kind of love. And that means we've got to be good at repentance. We've got to be good at saying, I'm sorry, I didn't love you the way that I was supposed to love you. This is what's missing in the world today.
Not people who can execute it perfectly, but people who will admit that they failed and who will say, by God's grace, I will try again to love you the way that God has loved me. And if you want to know the source of that kind of power, it's falling more in love with a God who loves you. It's understanding the depth of his great love for you. As you come to understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, it becomes so much easier to do that for someone else. Because you, you, you get the secret that nobody deserves it. And nobody could earn it. And yet it's freely given anyway. Let's pray together. God, we love you. I'm so thankful for this passage of scripture, for the gift of Hesed love that you've given to me, that you've offered to all of us. And I pray, I pray, God, that there would be some who this morning would hear this message and would surrender themselves to your Hesed love, would enter into covenant with you. Thank you, Jesus, for being so acquainted with grief. Thank you for the gift of lament when the world is broken, that we can look to you. Holy Spirit, would you minister to your people? In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.